This will be the sixth in the series of messages on the subject of infant salvation, and will be the second part of our examination of the theory of infant salvation known as the incapable theory. In last week's message, we began the examination of this view, which is based upon the incapability of an infant to commit sinful acts. This view holds that each member of Adam's race is given an individual state of probation during which they themselves determine their character by their actions, and then a destiny is assigned to their character. If they secure a good character, a destiny of heaven is the reward. If they secure a, an evil character, then the destiny of hell is the reward of that person's probationary period. This view holds that each person's probationary period, though, starts not in the Garden of Eden, not in their own conception and birth, but when they reach a point of maturity where they can personally and consciously choose to commit actions of good and evil. So the probationary period does not start until the period which is used by this view to define what is known as the age of accountability. And at that period of time is when the person's individual probation starts. It is not held that it started in Adam. It is not even held that it started in their own conception or birth. But at the moment wherein they reach an age of conscious maturity wherein they choose to either commit a good or an evil act, at that time their probation begins. Thus, the theory reasons that if a child should die before that point occurs, then they would be savable because they would have never committed a sinful act for which they could be condemned. Now, in last week's message, we stated that this view should be understood as false for three reasons. We list those, and then we'll proceed further tonight. First of all, this view should be viewed as false because man's state of probation and its testing to determine whether he would possess a sinful character or not ended in Adam's fall in the garden. When Adam fell, it was no longer going to be a question of whether Adam would have a sinful character or any of his descendants would have a sinful character. Adam represented the whole race in his action. So man's state of probation ended in Adam's act as to whether man would ever be a sinner or not. The second reason why this view should be viewed as false is that it fails to recognize that a person can be condemned for possessing a sinful nature as well as committing sinful acts. The view of incapability rests upon the understanding that only that is sinful which is committed in an act, but it fails to recognize a person can be a sinful being as well as commit sinful acts. So even though the child would never have committed a responsible moral act, does not eliminate them from being guilty of possessing a sinful nature. 
which if left unchecked is certainly going to grow into a state of maturity where it shall commit sinful acts. The third reason that we believe that this view should be rejected as false and inadequate is this. The view itself is inherently self-destructive, in that if all human destiny is determined by how one walks through their probationary period, then a dead infant could have no destiny of any sort, seeing as how they had no chance to walk either the road that leads to heaven or the road that leads to hell. So therein, on that own premise, the view is self-destructive. If the child's probationary period begins at the age of accountability out here when he first commits his first sin, if he should die before that, it is obvious he's never committed any acts. Therefore, he could not be condemned and go to hell, but neither could he be rewarded for heaven either. He never had a chance to walk either way if salvation is dependent upon how man acts in his probationary state. The child never got into his probationary state, and therefore he could have no destiny of any sort whatsoever. Well, we believe that there is a destiny for infants, do we not? We believe that human beings, that infants are human beings. And they're not going to be left outside of the eternal state like animals and plants and trees which may die in this life. They have a destiny of some sort. But if their destiny is dependent upon entering a probationary state and they die before entering that state, then this view here provides for no destiny for them of any type. Now tonight we will proceed a little further with the second line of argument which this incapable theory presents, the first being probationary testing. The second line of argument runs like this. Human ability is the measuring rule of obligation or responsibility. That is, a person is obligated to God upon the basis of what they are able to perform. Now, since then, that an infant cannot perform any obligations, it is then held then that an infant is not obligated or responsible to God. No person can be held accountable for not being or doing what he, by natural limitations, is unable to do. That's the common sense which this view says should be taken into consideration. It says, if I can, I ought to, but if I cannot, then I ought not. Now, do you see how it reasons then? During infancy, a child is unable to meet the obligations of life. Whether these ob obligations are imposed by nature at birth or by grace after birth, or in any other manner, consequently, it is reasoned that that individual child is not responsible for any natural sin which may be in his heart, nor for any formal act of sin which he may have committed in his moral state of immaturity as a child. Therefore, the child is viewed as negatively savable, since he's never sinned, then God is obligated to save him. But again, we have pointed out that in the probationary period, 
This view also holds that, a, that the person must go through a probationary state. If the child dies before that state, then he never gets into the probationary period. Get my tongue straightened out here in just a moment. And thus he has no destiny of any type. Well, then the reply is, but you cannot hold a person obligated for something which they cannot do. And therefore, this is supposedly an unanswerable argument. Now, we want to give the fallacy of this line of argument. Now, it may appear very, very sound, very, very strong indeed, but I'd like to give six different approaches this evening to show that the premise that human ability is the measuring rule of obligation or responsibility is not necessarily true. The first argument that we would show in this line is this. This position is not absolutely true. We do not even demand that this be true in our everyday life itself. And I hope to pull out some illustrations from everyday occurrences to show that we, in our own common sense as members of the human race, do not hold that it is absolutely true that human ability is the measuring rule of one's obligation or responsibility. We go first to commercial life and in the financial realm to illustrate this. It used to be, and I'll explain why it's changed in just a moment, but it used to be in financial dealings that the principle of jurisprudence or law was this, that bankruptcy did not destroy a financial contract. It used to be that if a person became unable to pay their bill, they still were obligated to pay their bill. That is, that bankruptcy did not in of itself destroy a financial obligation to meet that obligation. For example, the debtor could not say to the creditor, Now, I owed you yesterday, therefore I was obligated to you. But today I'm broke, and I don't have any ability to pay Therefore, I'm no longer obligated to you. Now, would you take that type of an agreement? Let's suppose that I came to you and we worked out a financial loan, and I borrowed $1,000 from you. And 30 days from now, I was going to owe you $1,000. Now, that financial contract that we signed made me obligated to repay that debt. So let's suppose then that I took that $1,000, which I had in my possession, and I had the capability of repaying you. I took that, and I bought a ticket on a seven-day cruise liner to go to the Bahamas. And I really lived it up. Ate all that food on that big boat, enjoyed all the pleasures there. Got back on my trip 30 days or so later, 
came to you and you said, well, our contract here says that you owe me now a thousand dollars. And I gave you this reply. Yes, that's true. When I signed that contract, I had the ability to pay you. Therefore, I owed you. But now then, I'm sorry. I no longer have any ability to pay you. Therefore, I'm no longer obligated to pay you. Now, how would you feel about that? Hmm? Is my ability then the measuring rule of my obligation to you in financial matters? No, no, my friend. No, no, not at all. I am absolutely still responsible to you to pay back that debt, even though I'm no longer able to meet that obligation. Human ability is not absolutely true, the measuring rule of obligation. Now, let's go a step further. Let's suppose that I come to you and you have been overindulging in the use of alcohol, and as a result, you have become bound and enslaved by intemperance, and you're in bondage to drink. And I come to you and I say, now, now, sir, you ought to change your ways. You ought to reform your life. And then you inform me, oh, but I am so bound by this habit I am no longer able to change. Therefore, I'm in no obligation to change. Do you see the line of reasoning? Has your inability destroyed your obligation to shape up your life and start taking care of your family and paying your bills and meeting your obligations? It certainly has not. You are in absolute still obligation to perform the duties to reform your life, even though you may be lacking in the ability because you're enslaved in the habit. Let's use another illustration. Let's suppose that you killed one of your acquaintances. And I came to you and I said, now then, uh, we've got to take you in to court. And you, t- you informed me, oh, but wait a minute. Mr. Gables, I was so mad at that person that I lost control of myself. And when I grabbed that individual with their hands and I squeezed, let's say, her life out of her body, I was so mad at her I could not control my actions. Therefore, you can't arrest me because I'm not obligated to that. Beloved, the line of thinking that human ability is the measure of human obligation is not absolutely true. Now, I want to explain in passing in this principle why our courts of law are in such a mess today. Years ago, the principle was, in our country, that a person was responsible for the act which they performed. That was because our country was founded upon what is known as Calvinistic principles of law, in which that a free moral agent was accountable to God, and they were accountable to their fellow man for their actions. 
But now, as those views have passed from the scene and have been replaced by what is known as Pelagian views of man, that you can only hold a person responsible for what they're able to do, then this is why we have the change in the bankruptcy laws, that now you can go out and charge all you want to, sign all the contracts you want to, and when you reach that point where you're no longer able to pay, you just go to court, they wipe out the whole thing, and you're no longer responsible. Now, how did that change take place? Just as the principles began to leave, which were set up by Calvinistic principles in law, and were replaced by Pelagian views of law, those same principles began to show up in the churches at the same time. As the pulpits began to recline or decline from preaching the principles of the Bible and began to replace those teachings with a Pelagian view of man, that man is absolutely able to do whatever you ask him to do, then the shift began taking place in evangelism, and in our churches as well in our, as in our law. So that now, in outside in our courts of law, when a person commits a murder, then the defense goes on this line. Oh, you can't hold my client responsible. His mother didn't hold him right when she held him on her lap. And that warped his little psychic nature. And he had a bad raising. And he's had it rough. He's, he's lived poor. You can't hold him responsible for going in and shooting that clerk in the store. He's just a product of his environment. Now, the Calvinistic view says absolutely not. If that man had the rationality of his mind... He understood what he was doing. He was not an idiot, having lost all of his sanity. Then he is absolutely responsible for that act which he did, no matter what type of an environment that he had been in. Now, beloved, I don't want to take a length of time this evening to, to apply this principle, but this is why we are in such a mess in our courts of law, and it's why we're in such a mess in our churches is that we have adopted a Pelagian view of man which says that God and our fellow man can only hold a person accountable for that which they are able to do. So it is not absolutely true. If it were true, then the way that you ought to do would be to turn evil into good and permit a person to become uncontrollable so then he couldn't be held accountable for anything. Therefore, the wickeder he got, the more unresponsible he would become. <laughs> Until that he could go out here and shoot and kill and murder. And he said, oh, you can't hold me accountable. I've hardened my heart. Is that the reasoning we want to go into? That's the reasoning that this position takes. Now, secondly, though, this line of argument that human ability is the measuring rule of obligation or responsibility is not only not absolutely true, but it is only at best relatively true. It's true only when we take into consideration the cause of the inability. What caused a person's inability? What caused man's inability 
to please God. If the cause of the inability was involuntary, then it would destroy man's obligation. That is, if man did not do it voluntarily, then he could not be held responsible. If man was destitute of any faculty of reasoning at all, he would not be held responsible for being irrational. The beasts of the field are not blamable for exercising none of the functions of a conscience. If a man was destitute of the faculty of a conscience, that is, if his maker, God, had created him without any moral conscience whatsoever, he would not be held accountable for not exercising the functions of a conscience. The dog is not responsible for being unethical in his judgments. Now, if a dog gets over in your flower bed, you may shoot it, but you can't accuse that dog of being unethical. That dog had no conscience any more about your flower bed than it did of the ten other flower beds that were on the, on the lot or on the block. A dog does not have a conscience as such. If man had no conscience, he could not be held accountable or under obligation to God or to his fellow man. <clears throat> if a man, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> if a man had no will, and that was due to a creative act of God, he would not be censurable or blamable for acting like a machine in everything that he does. <clears throat> a tree, for example, is not required to exercise free choices. A tree cannot be blamed because it doesn't make a decision. If I walk up to that tree and I say, would you please move yourself off of my land onto this land over here? If that tree doesn't move, I can't blame it. It has no will. If man was not created with a rational mind, with a conscience, and with a will, he could not held, be held accountable for his actions. But, beloved, if something even happened to man which destroyed his rationality, then we do not hold him accountable if he becomes what is referred to as an idiot. If he is in an automobile accident and his brain is destroyed of his faculties of reason, then this happened in an involuntary manner, and he is not held obligated. But, beloved, when we are talking about moral issues here, we're not talking about something outside of man causing man to lose his inability. We're talking about a self-induced inability. We're talking about a willful act wherein man sinned against God. And as a result of that sin, he lost his inability, but God did not lose his right to command. The contract is still in a force between God and Adam in the garden. Even though Adam lost his ability, God did not cancel his obligation to still love him with all his heart, mind, and soul. Adam has lost that capacity, but don't think for a minute that God has lost his ability to continue to command Adam and to expect out of Adam that love and that devotion to be given unto God. Self-induced inability 
can hold one accountable. Let us suppose that I got a notice from the draft board of the United States of America. And it said, we want you to appear at such and such a day at such and such a, a draft station, report for induction. It's your duty to do so. So I go out and I take a saw and I cut off one of my legs. And then I wheel myself into that draft station and I say, here is my notice in which you say I am obligated to become a soldier of the United States of America. But as you can see, I am not able to meet my obligation. Now then, how do you think that the government's going to view that? They're going to say, well, that's, that's too bad. I guess we can't hold him accountable. Oh, no, my friend. <laughs> I induced that inability. I'll guarantee you they'll find a place for me somewhere. They'll find a place for me somewhere because my ability, while I lost that capability, did not eliminate my obligation because I am still under duty to God and to that government for that draft notice. So it does not cancel it because of self-induced inability. Now, this is recognized in our courts of law, in common sense, and in everyday life. Now, thirdly, this argument that human ability is the measuring rule of obligation or responsibility was only true of Adam in his creation and prior to his fall in the garden. That is, that when Adam was created, he was given every power and every ability necessary to perform every duty imposed upon him by his maker in the garden. But that has never been true since Adam fell. For God said that in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely what? You shall surely die. Something happened to Adam when he sinned. But it wasn't something that God made him do. It wasn't something outside of him. He did it of his own free choice. And therefore, he induced his inability. But God's obligation upon Adam still remained in force. So before the fall, the formula was like this. Adam's ability was here, and it equaled his obligation here. Adam had perfect ability to perform his obligation. But when Adam fell, what he transmitted to you and I as members of the race is this formula. Inability equals obligation. Do you see the same thing? Before the fall, obligation, or rather ability, equals obligation. After the fall, inability still equals obligation. So now then, we're in a problem. We're in a problem. We are held accountable to God to love God with all our what? Heart, mind, and soul. I ask you, do you have the ability to do that tonight? Are you under obligation to do that tonight? 
And how you answer that will determine how much you've been influenced by Pelagian understanding of man's will. You are 100% obligated to love God throughout the totality of your being tonight, and I am too. But, oh, my friend, the inability in my heart to do so, the inability to do so, then how am I going to please God? I'm going to have to find some help somewhere. I'm going to have to find some help somewhere. If God still holds me obligated, then I've got to find some help somewhere. It's got to come from outside of me. And, of course, you know where that help comes from, don't you? It's in the gospel, in the redemptive purpose of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the principle that human ability is the measuring rule of obligation was true only of Adam in his creation and prior to his fall. But now then, it is human inability still equals obligation unto God. Now, the formula of Calvinism is this. Voluntary or self-induced inability does not destroy one's obligation. And that is held to be the truth of Scripture. Adam induced his inability. Therefore, God could still hold him accountable or responsible or obligated before God. Now, I want to give you a few things that the scriptures refer to describing man's inability to please God or to carry out his obligation unto God. This self-induced inability is described in the scriptures by the word cannot. Cannot. Have you ever heard that word in the Bible? Cannot. Now, let me give you a few of the cannots which the Bible uses to describe man's spiritual inability in the things of God. First, the Bible says that man cannot see the glory of God. John 3, 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I cannot denotes inability. Secondly, man cannot understand the spiritual things of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. Now, I want you to follow these texts of Scripture. Because every one of these cannots is associated with a self-induced inability. Why cannot the natural man, unregenerate man, why can he not appreciate and understand the spiritual things of God? Because he sees them as foolishness. It's a self-induced inability. It's not something outside of man's the problem. It's renders him unable to meet his obligations. Thirdly, man cannot please God. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot 
please God, unquote. Now, that wasn't my wording. That was the actual quotation. Any person who is in the flesh, who has not been made a partaker of a spiritual nature, has a heart in that nature which is at war with God. And as they remain in that nature, they are at enmity with God, and they cannot please God. Cannot. That's inability. The Bible says that even the man who's out here plowing on his plow is sinning against God. Why is that? Because he's not doing it for the glory of God. He's doing it for his own financial interest or even that of his fellow man. You say, well, that's, that's legitimate. But man was created to glorify his God. And if a man plows his garden for a motive of self-interest or even that of helping his neighbor, if he does not do it for the glory of God, he has sinned and come short of the glory of God, so that he will not do it for the glory of God. He cannot please God. Next, man cannot come to Christ. John chapter 6, verse 44, quote, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Do you mean he doesn't have any legs? No, coming to Christ is not a physical movement. Where is this inability? Jesus said, ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Come unto me, all ye weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. But no man can come unless God does something in his nature. Because his nature is at enmity with God, doesn't want to be ruled by God, isn't interested in the spiritual things of God. He must be born again before he can see the glory of plowing his field for the glory of God. He's got to be born again. Next, man cannot believe in Christ. John chapter 12, verse 39, quote, Therefore they could not believe, unquote. And you have to find the context why they couldn't. Why they couldn't. It wasn't something that God had done to them. It wasn't something which their environment had done to them. It was something which they had self-induced in their own natures. And that nature was set in opposition against God. So that they would not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the fifth line of thinking to show why human ability is not the measuring rule of obligation to God, is this. Free moral agency is the measuring rule of human obligation, not human ability. It is free moral agency which renders one obligated to God, not their human ability. Now listen carefully. This is a very, very important point which will not only help us in our study on infant salvation, but also throughout the whole other understanding of man's obligation to God and of the redemptive purpose in Christ. What is necessary, Pastor Gables, for a person to be morally responsible to God and obligated to God? If it's not based on his ability, what is it that God does to render a person accountable to him? And I give three things, 
First of all, to be morally responsible to God as a moral creature, they must first be in the present possession of their reasoning abilities to distinguish truth from falsehood. A moral creature is a person who's able to have a rational mind to discern truth from error. You go to a tree, and I don't care how much you preach the gospel, it cannot discern truth from error. It has no faculty of reason. To be morally accountable and obligated to God, a creature must be in possession of its rational faculties to discern truth from error. Secondly, a moral creature must possess a moral conscience or sense of right from wrong. There must be something in the conscience that when a trigger is pulled and a body drops to the floor, that that conscience reacts, wait a minute, This is not right. I would not want to have had that done to me. A person must be in possession of their conscience in order to be held morally accountable before God. Thirdly, a person's choices or acts of their will must be self-decided, that is, determined by their own understanding and desires. And if any of these three things are absent, that person is insane and is neither free nor responsible. If they do not have a mind which can discern truth from error, if they do not have a conscience which can sense right from wrong, if they do not have a will which is self-determining, that in light of what their mind informs it, in light of what their conscience plugs into that understanding, connected with the affections of the heart and desires, if that will be not in operation where it can determine its own actions, then that person is not considered a moral creature, but is a brute of the field or a plant which God has created. What is the difference, Brother Gables, between free moral agency, or liberty, and human ability, then. You say you believe in free moral agency. Absolutely. Every moral being is a free moral agent. What, then, is the difference between a free moral agent and human ability? Now, listen carefully. Liberty, or free agency is the ability of a person to will and to do as they please. In that, the will is determined only by their own character or nature. What is a free moral agent? It's a person who has the liberty to do as they please. All right, any objections to that? I don't know anybody that would object to such a definition as free moral agency. It's the freedom to do what your desire is to do. No impositions from the outside imposed upon you. But that is different from ability. It is one thing to have the ability, or rather the freedom, to desire 
what I want to do, and it's another thing to have the ability. Now listen carefully. Ability consists in the power of a person to change their own state of being so as to make themselves prefer what they do not prefer, and to act in an opposite way to what their own heart desires and prefers. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Hmm? Can the leopard change his spots? Can a person act and desire something different from what their very nature desires? Now, you invite me over to your house, and you put before me a generous offering of spinach. I, as a free moral agent, will respond to you, and I will say, thank you. But no, thank you. I will inform you that I freely do not enjoy eating spinach. And that there is nothing within my capacity that by an act of my being I can make my nature like what my nature doesn't like. I have no ability to change myself. And that is the difference between free agency, a creature's right and privilege to do as they please and desire, and human ability. Human ability cannot change its own desire. And this is what we mean, why we do not believe that salvation is by human ability. If the Ethiopian can change his skin and the leopard his spots, then the text goes on to say, Then ye which are accustomed to do evil can do good. But the Ethiopian cannot change his skin and the leopard cannot change his spots. Therefore, a person who freely desires to do evil and sin against God cannot choose to change his nature and give himself a desire to please God. He cannot do it. All that a free agent has to be in order to be free and at liberty is to be able to have the freedom to do what his heart desires. And that's what God allows us to do. It's what God allowed me to do, even as a new creature. He just gave me a whole new heart of desires. Just gave me a whole new heart of desires. Now I desire to serve him, whereby I formerly did not desire to do so. But to others, he just gives them what they desire. Everybody's happy. They ought to be happy with that, shouldn't they? You don't want to serve God? You don't want to be holy tonight? If God just left you there, would he wrong you? He just given you what you say you want. But bless God to some, he gives them a new nature. And they desire to be holy. They desire to please him and to serve him. But everybody gets what they desire. For all moral beings are free moral agents. Now, I want to give five illustrations of free moral agency to show that the Calvinistic understanding in this approach is the true and the biblical one. First of all, I won't ask for a show of hands. 
How many of you here tonight believe that God is a moral being? Hmm? You believe he is? Or is he a stump? Is he a brute? Or does God have ideas of right and wrong? Is God a moral creature? Yes or no? Hmm? You agree with that he is a moral creature? Are you ready? Does God possess a free moral agency? Hmm? If he's a moral creature, a moral being, he must have a free will, quote unquote. Would that not be logical? Anybody here tonight want to deny to God his right to do as he pleases? If we do that, then we take away from God his free moral agency. God never takes away from any of his creatures their free moral agency. He created them as moral creatures. So that every creature which is a moral being does what they desire to do. But now then I ask you a question. If you consent that God is a moral being, a moral creature, does God have the equal power to desire to sin? Hmm? Does God desire holiness? Does God have then the corresponding equal ability to commit sin? Of course not. Then the Arminian and Pelagian understanding of free agency falls under when we examine that God himself is a free moral agent, and yet he does not have the equal capacity to do sin that he has to do good. Proof for this? James chapter 1, verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God, are you listening, cannot be tempted with evil. There's nothing in God that could tempt him to do evil, but yet he is a free moral agent. Secondly, Titus 1, 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. Is God a God of truth? Yes or no? Then can God lie? He cannot. But yet he is a free moral agent in that he does what he pleases to do. But he does not have to have the equal capacity to do the opposite in order to be a free moral agent. Another passage, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. God cannot deny his very holy character and choose to do something which is the opposite of his very nature. And that's why he's the immutable, unchanging God, who's holy, just, and good. Do you believe that God is holy, just, and good? Do you believe he has the ability to be unholy, unjust, and evil? Yet he is a free moral agent, in that he does what he pleases. Second illustration. Christ himself. Christ was a free moral agent. 
Did Jesus have the moral ability to sin? He was a human being. Was he not? If he was something less than a human being, he was not our representative. But he was made a little lower than the angels, that he might test taste death for his people. But yet Jesus was not morally capable of sinning, but he was a free moral agent. He had a sanctified nature of perfection, which I'm going to have one day. But yet he did not have the corresponding opposite capability of sinning in the realm of morals. Hebrews 7.26, For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from what? Sinners. He was separate from sin. Third illustration of a free moral agent. What about the glorified saints in heaven? When we all get to heaven... What a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. How many of us will desire to return to our old life of sin? Hmm? How many of the perfected, redeemed, sanctified, and glorified saints in heaven will have the capacity to sin? Hmm? Did they lose their humanity? No, they were given a perfected humanity. What are you saying, Brother Jim? I am saying that there are free moral agents still, but they do not have the corresponding opposite ability to sin. Fourth illustration. What about the devil? Is the devil a moral being? Certainly he is. Does God hold him obligated for what he's done and is doing? Well, you better believe he is. Is there any more example in the universe of a totally depraved moral creature than the devil? Now, is the devil capable of committing one act of good? Can he? Not one. And yet he is a free moral agent. He's doing what he does because he, he likes to do it. That's all that's necessary. To be a free moral agent is for a being to be allowed to do what he wants to do in his heart. He's free to God. But yet he's under obligation to God. Jesus said of the devil, quote, in John eight forty four, He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is what? No truth in him. No truth in the devil, all lies. He is incapable of uttering one statement of truth or doing one act of truth, and yet he is viewed as a free moral agent, accountable unto God and obligated unto God. Then what about a sinner? Hmm? What about a sinner who's never been born again? Does he have to possess an equal ability in his will to love God as well as to love sin in order to be a free moral agent? We say no. All he has to do to be a free moral agent is to be allowed for him to do as he desires to do. 
but he does not have to have the corresponding ability to do good if he chooses to do evil. And we've given four illustrations. God, Christ, the saints in heaven, and the devil are all examples of individuals who are free moral agents, and yet they do not have the equal capacity to evil as well as good. A free moral agent is then a being who is free to do as he desires, but he is not someone who can do contrary to what he desires. God cannot do contrary to what he desires. The devil cannot do contrary to what he desires. The saints in heaven cannot do contrary to what they desire to do. And, beloved, one day, if we're redeemed by Christ's blood, we're going to have that type of a being. But if you're redeemed tonight, you'll find a duality going on within you. You're finding a desire to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And yet you're finding something else like the Apostle Paul, a principle of sin, yet within, which would rise up and say no unto God. You are a free moral agent. Now, the Pelagian view that ability is the measure of obligation then in conclusion, destroys the very ground, their very ground for infant salvation. Why do you say that, Brother Jim? Because only morally responsible beings shall enter heaven. I remember uh, when I was pastoring in St. Louis, we had a little girl there, precious little thing, 11 years old, and she had a horse. And uh, it seems like I am always getting hit with theological questions, which I have got to go and spend months and even years trying to answer that nobody else ever gets exposed to. She came to me, and she, her horse died, beautiful white horse. She came to me after church one Sunday morning, and she said, uh, Pastor Jim, my horse died. And she started crying. She said, Pastor Jim, will he be in heaven with me? Now, what would you have replied? Hmm? What would you have told her? Well, I said, I'll have to look that up, Lisa. Let's see what, that, what the Bible has to say about that. About uh, a block from our church, they had an animal cemetery. Go down there, canaries and uh, all pets, and here here lies our beautiful songbird, you know, pay $500 to put a bird in, in the ground. Went through that one time. Got to wondering, well, is there a resurrection of these brutes, these non-conscious beings? And to my understanding, none of that is included in the redemptive program and purpose of God. Although it does speak of horses associated with the coming of Christ, speaks of a new heaven, a new earth, of animals, plants on that earth. But I do not understand that they shall be resurrected species of that which has been taken out of this earth. But nevertheless, every creature which enters in to God's heaven will be a morally responsible 
creature. This view of infant salvation would deny infants entering into heaven because they are saying they were not responsible or obligated. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 22 and verse 14, and let's see who it is that shall enter into that heavenly city. Revelation, chapter 22, and uh, what did I say, verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments. Now, that's responsibility. That's free moral agency there. That they may have right to the tree of life. Where is that tree of life? It's in that new paradise. And may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. No one is going to enter into the gates of the new Jerusalem who is not morally conscious and accountable unto God. All right, are you ready then? Pelagian reasoning holds that infants are not responsible being until their age of accountability. Deduction then there is no possibility for them entering into that city. They cannot do God's commandments according to the Pelagian understanding. Thus, there is no destiny for the infant who dies before their probationary state begins. The conclusion, then, is that this view of infant salvation must also be rejected, in that it is both inadequate in its answer And it departs from the scriptural revelation concerning sin and grace. Will those infants be included in the church of God? Jesus Christ states in Ephesians 5 that Christ loved his church and what? Gave himself for it. Will infants be included in that church? And if not, how will they enter heaven? Only morally conscious, accountable creatures shall enter heaven. Those which can discern the rightness of God's commandments and have access unto that tree wherein they shall live eternally in the presence of God. And all who do not desire those commandments are outside of the city in a place prepared for them. Infants then must be conscious and discernible when they walk through those pearly gates, and they shall walk through it redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and regenerated by the Spirit of God, wherein their nature has been perfectly sanctified like that of Christ, and they shall walk through singing the song, Redeemed and so happy, I am. Let us stand tonight for our closing prayer.